And people always ask us, so what exactly do you mean by beautiful business? What's the definitive you know, list or definition? And beauty is what does not exist. So it's basically what is in your imagination is everything worth aspiring for that does not exist yet. So in business, it means it's business that could be more inclusive, more sustainable, more imaginative, more humane, more interdisciplinary, more tender, uh, softer, more ambig ambiguous, more poetic. So all of these qualities that we have, I think, for too long removed from the way we operate business, which was very reductionist, very data-driven, very outcome-oriented, very process-oriented. You've scanned the headlines, read the articles, and liked the posts. Now listen to the experts themselves in the Future of Work podcast, presented by allwork.space. Are you ready? Hello, and welcome to the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. I'm Joe Mernier, and today I'm speaking with Tim Leberecht, who is the co-founder and co-CEO of the House of Beautiful Business, a global think tank and community with a mission to make humans more human, business more beautiful, and ultimately, of course, to make business more human too. Tim has had a fascinating career. He served as the chief marketing officer for NBBJ, the global design and architecture firm, and he is also the CMO for Frog Design, a product design and innovation consultancy. You may have seen his TED Talks, Three Ways to Usefully Lose Control of Your Brand, and most recently, Four Ways to Build a Human Company in the Age of Machines. As if that's not enough, Tim is also an author. His book is called The Business Romantic. So I'm looking forward to digging into all of this, specifically to understand how it all links with the future of work and what Tim is doing to help people and businesses overcome the challenges that are facing today's workforce. So firstly, welcome, Tim, and thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Joe. And um, I've just learned something amazing that your surname means something quite special. Can you tell us about your surname? <laughs> so my surname, Leberecht or Leberecht in proper German, where I grew up, uh, means right to live or live the right life. So it's kind of like a moral imperative. It's an old Prussian name that I got from my, from my father who was born and raised in Berlin. Amazing. And that is quite beautiful, which leads us nicely <laughs> yeah. on to our opening topic is the house of beautiful business. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what beautiful business means? Yeah, the, the House of Beautiful Business started on the heels of the release of my first book, The Business Romantic, which came out in uh, 2015 and uh, explored what I uh, dubbed like a new need for a new romanticism against the backdrop of the total datification, total quantification of everything. And um, as I was trying to form a community around the book after its release, I, um, I had this intention of hosting the most romantic business conference ever. And together with my longtime colleague and friend, Till, who then became the co-founder of the house, we started in Barcelona with this most romantic business conference uh, ever. And it really struck a chord. You know, people really wanted to have a space where the conversations were not only, only transactional, not only focused on business, immediate business outcomes, but went deeper and drew from the humanities and from the arts, were more playful, imaginative, more, more whimsical. And that was the birth hour of the House of Beautiful Business. And we quickly decided to then continue with the idea of the house and turn it into a global community that's now been uh, existing since 2017. We have more than 20,000 subscribers. We have uh, paying members, individuals and corporations all around the world. We have more than 35 local hubs from Johannesburg to Kyoto to Melbourne to uh, Los Angeles to London with local activities. And the idea really is to create a, a brave new space for different conversations about the future of work, to experience what a completely reimagined brand of business might look like 
in a very yeah loving and, and multidisciplinary way. And people always ask us, so what exactly do you mean by beautiful business? What's the, the definitive you know list or definition? And we really have successfully shied away from that. Uh, we chose the term beauty because it is so elusive. Uh, it is in the eye of the beholder. It is, as the Portuguese uh, writer Fernando Pessoa said, beauty is what does not exist. So it's basically what is in your imagination is everything worth aspiring for that does not exist yet. So in business, it means it's business that could be more inclusive, more sustainable, more imaginative, more humane, more interdisciplinary, more tender, uh, softer, more ambig ambiguous, more poetic. So all of these qualities that we have, I think, for too long removed from the way we operate business, which was very reductionist, very data-driven, very outcome-oriented, very process-oriented in the sort of industrialist, post-industrialist um, way that we have run our businesses. And we want to open, yeah, we sort of see ourselves as a Trojan horse, as a gateway into a new way of doing business. And people who join us as members, we're a membership-based organization, are invited to experiences and content and discussions and projects that all um, share this mission to explore what, what could business look like if we were imaginative and not like just beholden to the, the current constraints? That's amazing. I've got so many questions buzzing through my mind right now. Um, I, I think the thing that seems to strike true is that it, it's all about connections, isn't it? It's about people building connections, sharing experiences, sharing knowledge, um, and that's helping each other to to build and strengthen their businesses and um, and, and take them forward. It, it really is. I think there, in the, the pandemic, I believe, has further fueled that desire that people realize, like, at the end of the day, connection and community is all there is. So, you know, there's this famous research conducted by, by nurses who spend the last remaining hours, the ultimate hours of the dying, and it documents that, uh, you know, the greatest regret that people always have when they're on their deathbed is not more money, it's not more success, it's not more necessarily impact or... Uh, and not even romantic relationships, interestingly enough. It's friendship. They say, I should have spent more time with those close to me, family or friends. And so deep connections in whatever shade or form, um, I think are really what makes a life worth living, is what makes a life beautiful, to have genuine, deep, honest connection and recognition of yourself as who you truly are in mm -hmm. a community that you chose or that you created yourself. And I think that desire has only uh, yeah, grown through the pandemic. It is one that we try to cater to. People come to us at the end of the day for whatever business reasons they stayed. You know, of course, they say, I want to develop my business. I want to meet interesting you know, people from a business perspective. I want to promote my business. But at the end of the day, they're all humans. And at the end of the day, we all go to conferences and networking events, not because of business reasons primarily. We want connection and community. We want to be loved and heard and seen and connect with people. Mm -hmm. And all the business reasons are uh, give us great alibis, but they're not the truth. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it seems to me that through your work and, and through the programs that you want to equip business leaders with um, the tools they need for future entrepreneurship, um, perhaps to challenge the way things are done and to introduce new ways of thinking. Um, to, and in your view, what are some of the key challenges that you think are facing us in the future of work? And my next question will be, how are you working to solve them? Where to start? There's so many challenges. There have always been challenges when it comes to work. I mean, first of all, we spend the majority of our waking hours at work, right? I think 65 or 70 percent of our waking hours we spend as knowledge workers at work. So work is quite important. It work is, as the poet David White said, is what breaks or makes ourselves. It's where we get a sense of identity and meaning. 
And, and I think that sense is also through the pandemic has really grown more, more profound, uh, mm -hmm. and hence the great resignation, right? So 40 or more percent of people quitting their jobs or planning to quit their jobs. Um, so people really realize like what I do, what we'll do really matters. And I want my, my everyday work aligned with my greater purpose in life. That mm -hmm. would be one of the main challenges, I believe, going forward, both for uh, workers, but also for the organizations or for companies mm -hmm. to make sure that they give people a sense of purpose and that they offer a platform um, on which people can fulfill themselves and pursue their own personal purpose. I think especially for the younger generations, we know from various studies that is really paramount. I think another um, big challenge will be as we see decentralized economies, right? So decentralized autonomous organizations run on blockchain with micropreneurs and increasing the independent gig workers who are almost like all entrepreneurs, you know, in their own right, contributing to, to network projects. Um, so super flexible ways of collaborating. On the one hand, that gives us a, sense, a great sense of freedom and agency. And we also know from research that's what people really appreciate. But at the same time, it might happen at the expense of, of belonging or of the sense of belonging to a community. And it can become very lonely. It can become very isolated. And, and I think the workplace has, as we face this, this uh, loneliness epidemic, you know, that's mm -hmm. often been stated, the workplace has such a responsibility to, to integrate us into society, to, to give us a sense of community and belonging, to provide social structures, you know, that give us a sense of stability. Um, far beyond the performance or getting tasks done, it's a, it's a big social mandate, I believe, that workplaces have. And I think as we decentralize and as so much of the work has become remote or hybrid or is moving onto blockchain and other decentralized modes of operation, I, I believe it, that, that's going to be very hard to maintain. So how do we create intimacy from a distance? How do we create a sense of belonging if the structures are increasingly informal and blurry mm -hmm. and hybrid? Um, and I had an interesting conversation with, with the CEO of a big uh, automotive company about this. Um, and, and, and I was sort of saying, I don't know if the organization as it exists today will still exist in 20 years. Maybe it's all, you know, Hollywood style projects uh, of gig workers. And he said, yeah, on the one hand, perhaps, but on the other hand, the, the, the desire to actually be in an office with other people and have and, and represent a strong brand with a strong sense of purpose is a family and it's it's such a powerful institution socially that i'd be surprised if people completely you know uh, uh, uh kind of uh, forgot about that need so that that is one challenge i think for leaders mm -hmm. and for organizations of the future and i think the third big one and the last one i would i would uh, state is is just automation of course so it, it yeah. is this fear that we're going to be replaced by ever smarter artificial intelligence and robots and how to coexist with machines, how to develop a fruitful, respectful relationship with machines. Uh, because you know, automation and AI, of course, is inevitable. Everything that, will, uh, need, that, that can be done efficiently and can be done more efficiently will be done more efficiently by machines. As Andrew, Andrew McAfee from MIT said, everything that's dirty, dull, or dangerous will be done by machines. So it's very <laughs> important to think about like, how can, what is the work that, that uh, that only we humans can do. And it's the work mm -hmm. that is beautiful, the work that mm -hmm. needs to be done with love, with care, with discretion, with fantasy, with empathy, also with sensing instead of knowing, um, with mm -hmm. feeling and intuiting and rather than calculating, which is, of course, what machines are very good at. So, mm -hmm. so I think one of the challenges, just to, to, to wrap up my answer to your question, but, which, sorry, was very long-winded, 
um, I think the, the challenge for organizations will to really club, carve out the space for humans to be human and do work that only humans can do. Yes. Uh, and to really clearly demarcate that, but also protect it and defend it from the onslaught, of course, of, of efficiency-driven automation. Yes. And, and we'll dig a bit further into automation in a moment, but coming back to one of your, I think it was your first point um, about creating a sense of belonging. Um, that's made more difficult now with a lot of, lot of people working from home or working from remote locations. Um, and on the one side, they might be happy to do that, which helps create this feeling of empowerment that you mentioned, um, but also for the culture side of it and that sense of belonging and, and, and the connectedness, it can make that more challenging. So how do you think organizations in this, in this new world of work, how can they help to foster that sense of belonging in their workplace? It starts with a very strong mission and a clear sense of purpose. Like, what is what does the organization stand for? What is it against? What mm -hmm. who's the enemy? Um, uh, you know, who is not part of a family? Uh, my my friend and, and mentor Priya Parker, who wrote this wonderful book, The Art of Gathering, always says, "If everybody is family, no one is family." <laughs> so I think that that's a, a sense of a very distinctive identity is is key. Then secondly, I think that identity needs to become manifest in experiences. And I think it's mostly emotive or emotional experiences that connect people and inspire people. So it is the, the beautiful dinner, you know, formal or informal after work. It is the retreat, a gathering that's really carefully designed to, yeah, to, to project a different version, a different persona of the organization, to have the license to play. Uh, at a retreat or other, uh, you know, pockets of, of, of imagination within an mm -hmm. organization. And I think it's also, and this is something that the pandemic has really propelled us to do, it's to really commit to spaces that are purely social. Um, mm -hmm. So to, to differentiate between meetings that are clearly outcome-driven, that have a clear process, that are very stringent, but at the same time also to allow space for the unnecessary for for everything that is not necessarily immediately serving the bottom line for intimacy, for, for symbolic value, for rituals, you know, for, for dwelling on an idea and, and staying in a space for a little bit too long than the regime of efficiency would allow for. Because if you remove all of that, if you have a purely efficiency-run organization, then basically you have no culture. Because culture mm -hmm. is an excess. It's everything that is not necessary strictly by strict management terms. And protecting that and, to, and saying as a, as a leader, you know, we're only going to grow by 20% instead of 25, but we will have a healthy culture that will benefit the well-being and the mental and physical mm -hmm. health of people and their sense of purpose. Um, I think is a, is a deliberate decision that many organizations or leaders can take. Um, and yeah, those are some of the things I believe that that uh, companies can do to foster that sense of purpose, even if it's, uh, you know, uh, work will become hybrid or is already becoming hybrid. Yes. Um, and that sense of purpose and that, and that need to give workers more control and more choice, uh, more flexibility to make them happier and more productive. For the um, for the small business owner, for example, stepping into their shoes, they walk into the office on a on a Monday morning. They have all these ideas in their head. Um, they want to make it happen. But where do they start? How do they actually put these ideas into some into a step by step process? Hmm. Yeah, I, I I believe that change always happens from, if you will from the grassroots up, but also it needs a champion, not necessarily at the very top, but it needs to have an influential voice and champion with power, with sway and influence in the organization. That's really mm -hmm. key. And then I believe like, let's say people really wanted to make their work lives and their workplaces more beautiful and implement some of the ideas that we promote, intimacy, doing the unnecessary, 
um, more space for playfulness, for mm -hmm. rituals. Um, I think it first starts always, as always, with any with language, uh, using different language, which is why my book was called The Business Romantic. It's a very evocative term that also polarizes. It's slightly uncomfortable. Beauty mm -hmm. is, I think, of the same quality. So just uh, introducing compassion, empathy has now, of course, been established, but it was also very much an outlier years ago. So it starts with language that then slowly sinks in and drives change. And, and then the second, the second thing is to is to create, uh, to build muscle, to do small hacks. It could be a little underground meeting, you know, a little beacon project, uh, a group of people who secretly meet and form a tribe and promote some of these ideas and, and change small things in their organization, the seating order, um, the way the afternoon meetings are run, uh, walk-in meetings, uh, silent dinners, something that we are also doing with the house to create a sense of tenderness and intimacy. So it's these small hacks, these small little distortions, small little deviations that then form something bigger. And eventually, and this is, this is the theory of the designer Bruce Mao, he said, if you create all these little islands of change, um, then you can eventually draw a big circle around it and that's your new land, you know? Mm -hmm. So once you have all these islands, you know, it, that, that's basically the new continent, the new mainland, rather than tackling change on the mainland per se. So I think that's, that's what you can do. And, um, and this might be very incremental. It's, it's through these little, um, you know, hacks of change and these little rituals, but it will eventually, if a lot of people uh, join and do it themselves as well, it will become a movement and it will have an impact. Mm -hmm. I love I love that analogy about the small islands. I think that's just brilliant. Um, and coming on to the topic of automation, um, the future of work seems to be all about automation, automation, automation. Uh, one stat that I saw earlier was that up to 20 million manufacturing jobs around the world could be replaced by by machines by 2030. And that was a 2019 article that I read, which was only a couple of years ago. So I have a few questions about that. Is that well, one, in this world of automation that we're facing, how do we make the future of work more human? Well, I think the one, uh, one job for us to do is, is what I said earlier, is to make sure that we carve out space that allows us to be human, that we actually yes. harness the very inherently human talents that we have and contribute them at the right place at the right time mm -hmm. so that we are not forced to compete uh, on the grounds of efficiency with machines, but because that's a battle we will lose. You know, we will not outperform machines in terms of efficiency. Um, but we are very good with ambiguity. We're good with poetry. We're good with holding multiple truths. We're also very good at losing. So we, we, we're not programmed to play to win. We're not necessarily programmed to optimize at all costs as human beings. And, you know, I think machines are very good at detecting patterns. They're very good at uh, recognizing patterns and collecting huge amounts of data and analyzing them in a record amount of time. And they can give us cues and information. But drawing the bigger picture and imagining a future, that is not something machines can do. That mm. requires fantasy and it requires, it requires intuition and the whole intelligence of our body, by the way, not just our brain and our logic, everything, the whole somatic uh, intelligence that runs throughout our body, um, that is what we can bring to the table. So that's one. And I think the second, the second uh, order of business in terms of making sure that our workplaces remain human um, against uh, the backdrop of automation is to make sure that we create artificial intelligence with the right values, you know, that is aligned with our mission and our being human, that respects the rights of all stakeholders, other life on earth. 
that isn't you know uh, aggressive and isn't of course unconditionally devoted to um, results because that's you know that that would be catastrophic. <laughs> mm. So um, I think ultimately it will become um, a it will become a coexistence, and I think we also need to understand as humans that artificial intelligence is an intelligent way of being. It, it, it may not have a soul or consciousness. I was just thinking about the recent dispute uh, stirred up by a Google engineer who claimed Google already developed AI that has consciousness or a soul. I don't think we're there, but it is, it is a form of life and intelligence also that we should not dismiss and that we should develop a relationship with, like with mm -hmm. any other forms of life and on earth, like, you know, plants and animals and, other forms of uh, other creations. So mm -hmm. I think it, it will be a human workplace if um, both machines respect as humans, but also if we respect machines and AI as contributors to value and as partners in the yes. value creation of the future. Because we do need this automation, don't we? Um, the way we're going, we need to, as you say, coexist with machines and with this process of automation. Um, but for those of us, you know, who want to continue working, we have jobs, um, there's going to be a big skill shortage coming up, isn't there? So there's going to be a, a need to, to reskill, to upskill, to gain all these new skills to coexist with, with machines. Um, so where do we go from here? What's the answer? Yeah, I mean, it is a big reskilling that, that's needed. And it's interesting now that I've been traveling again, you, you may have had the same experience, right? There's so much staff shortage at airports and, you know, there are no flight attendants anymore. There's no gate. Uh, uh, personal, uh, and that's a trend that we see across industries, especially service industries, hospitality, and other mm -hmm. industries. People just left their jobs, and I just don't know where they all went. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. if I talk to my um, my bubble, uh, I, my assumption is they all became coaches. Um, but then, <laughs> which which in a way bodes well because coaching is a, is obviously a job that's very relationship based, that is very mm -hmm. nuanced that cannot be, yet, as of today, cannot be done by, by AI necessarily, even though AI can help. So it, it will require a big reskilling. And I think it is already happening, of course, as, as I just mentioned, but it still also remains a privilege, of course, of those who can afford to switch careers, right? Who have the education and have the privilege and um, to be able to say, okay, I'm gonna become a coach or I'm gonna become you know, a, a relationship manager rather than um, a, 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 a baggage handler at the airport, something that can be replaced by, by automation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's the responsibility of the government, of organizations, of society as a whole to create these, these uh, opportunities. And there are startups in that space. It's also a huge opportunity that then look at, uh, so Multiverse is one, right? In the UK, it's a startup by Tony Blair's, co-founded by Tony Blair's son, that is looking at um, especially lower income uh, uh, populations and trying to sort of identify which skills, which roles they would match with and then basically help them and, and connect with organizations that would upskill them. There mm -hmm. are similar startups in the US um, that use AI actually to detect um, or to basically filter resumes and analyze resumes from applicants and very quickly uh, reskill them to software developers or AI engineers. So we, we need more of these platforms. We just have to make sure that they remain inclusive and that mm -hmm. they don't leave those out who either emotionally or cognitively or because of their education, their upbringing are not capable of so quickly transitioning to, to a new world of work. And it's, it's an arcane task. 
And the, the big fault line and the big danger, of course, is that the social divisions that we see in our society will further widen. And there is, mm. as is the case in Germany, you know, according to research, one third of the population that absolutely does not feel integrated or heard anymore in the political or societal process. So the way we solve this, this upskilling or this reskilling and making sure people have work that aligns with their talent and purpose, that's the, to me, that's the question for, mm -hmm. that, that's the one challenge that we need to solve in order to have peaceful, prosperous societies in the future. Yes. And what role does, um, does the employer play in this? Should they be the ones to say, okay, I appreciate there's going to be a lot of automation coming into my business um, and I will have to lose some people in the process or retrain them to work with this, uh, this, this new automation? Um, do you think there is a, an element of responsibility with, with employers and business leaders to, to take on that challenge? Oh, there certainly is. I mean, if not them, who will do it? You know, and yeah. I, I, I mean, I think, of course, they're all driven by uh, profit uh, motives and, and business and commercial business reasons. But at the same time, I think also, especially as with all the, the um, I think, more distinctive political citizenship that we're seeing over the past couple of years and more and more brands coming out and, and stating their political opinion and, 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 and articulating their social responsibility in a more honest way maybe than before, because there's more scrutiny now. I think there is an incentive. Uh, and there's also, I think now after COVID, a collective obligation that's shared by companies to, yeah, to really honor their social responsibility and help with that reskilling. Um, and what they can do is, of course, is they can offer, like Novartis does or uh, other companies, they can offer learning programs and make sure that the leadership development or the learning programs they offer are very adept at uh, helping people grow into different positions. Um, there are practices such as reverse mentoring, where you know different generation, different hierarchies of, of workers spend time with each other and help with each other. Um, there are practices such as shadowing, where workers are invited to basically step into the shoes of another colleague and, and perform their task for a week or for a month. So the fluidity basically of roles within an organization can be increased and that will help people, I think, flex their, their mm. emotional agility and their cognitive agility and then become more comfortable with switching jobs or diving into new fields of work. Um, but I think you also have to be brutally honest that, that there will be, because of automation, there will be entire lines of work that will be eliminated. And of course, there will be people who will lose um, their profession and will be hard pressed and will struggle with redefining themselves outside of the offerings that the, the companies um, can offer. But I do see I do see a more enlightened leadership there by organizations simply because I think the the public awareness of the consequences of automation and also the political and social responsibility of companies have grown has grown in the past couple of years. Yes. Um, and uh, when I was uh, preparing for this episode and I watched your TED talk, uh, Four Ways to Build a Human Company in the Age of Machines, um, in which you dive into this subject um, a lot more. Uh, one of the things you said is that the way we feel about the workplace is largely reliant on how we feel about our co-workers. And, and of course, that's that's great if we enjoy each other's company. But sometimes when there's a disconnect, obviously, that can um, cause quite a problem and it can be quite damaging if it's left unchecked. So in the future of work and, and for now, how can business leaders help to strengthen relationships in the work in the workplace and create a more positive culture? Yeah, the relationships among workers matter a great deal, specifically the ones to your manager. So if you have a manager you trust and who appreciates you and expresses that, I think that is usually a, a big proponent, a big a component of feeling at home at work and feeling fulfilled at work. 
Um, yes. What managers can do and, and organizations can do is, this is also uh, backed up by research that Google did a couple of years ago, examining what the, the constituting factors of effective teams and the number one uh, factor they found out is psychological safety. Um, and another word or to unpack that term psychological safety, I think it's really based on a quality that, uh, that I appreciate as a concept and as a, as a term, which is intimacy. And one of the, the things that relationship researchers found out, like John Gottman, arguably maybe the most uh, influential marriage researcher in particular, a relationship researcher, is that small moments of attachment are really crucial, much more so than the grand purpose or the great symbolic gesture. So in other words, rather than the one amazing retreat that people go to with their coworkers once a year, the water cooler conversation and a small token of appreciation or, you know, the fact that you maybe give five minutes to a meeting that runs over time just to have somebody heard who has not raised their voice yet. Uh, these small things, they matter much more. It's small mm -hmm. moments of attachment where people feel like, okay, I can, I, I, um, I'm really recognized. I can feel safe here. I can voice my ideas. I can, I can have a dissent and a dissenting opinion. So I, I, I believe that that's uh, uh, really important. And I think also it is a workplace that allows us to bring the full range of emotions to work. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the full self. I'm not so fond of that term because I think th that's really up for everybody to decide. I'm not sure I want to bring my full self to work. There needs to be also part of myself that I deliberately want to shield that's maybe outside of work. But what I do, bring a, do want to bring to work is I, I want to be emotionally, I want to allow myself to bring the full range of emotions to work, which includes complicated emotions, sadness, uh, grief, melancholy. And I always say that the, the most human workplace is not a workplace that, that makes us happy all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a workplace that allows us to be sad. Um, and it's that emotional diversity that leaders can role model, that they can design for, that, that we all can design for. And if that is warranted at work, then I believe that, yeah, we will have good relationships when we feel at home and, uh, and, uh, and human at work. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I love that what you said a moment ago about giving a voice to the people, perhaps at the end of the meeting who hadn't had their voices heard. Um, I think that's so important Well, for everybody, especially for those who are perhaps slightly introverted, a little bit quieter in nature. And, and like you say, it gives everybody um, a voice which is so empowering and so important. Um, and I'm looking at the time and it's amazing. Half an hour has flown by. So we are coming to the end of our, our, um, our episode. Um, so just to sum up, um, talking about beautiful business and beautiful people, what few things would you recommend someone to do to live a more beautiful life and or um, to have a, a better and more beautiful business? First of all, start with yourself and start with having empathy with yourself. Um, start by feeling how you're feeling um, and listen to your body, listen to your soul, take care of yourself. It's not a coincidence that the Harvard Business School, the maybe the world's leading institution in terms of leadership development and business education has introduced a seminar for new CEOs that uh, for, the, for the first two days of that seminar, they do nothing but uh, spending time on mental health and well-being and self-care. Because if oh, wow. you take care of yourself as a, as a CEO, as a leader, as a professional, you then can also care about others and you have the strength to then develop empathy with others and, and, 
seeing yourself and others and really recognizing them. So I think that's really the beginning of a, of a beautiful work life. It's just like be very close to yourself and deep dive into um, who you really are. And then secondly, I think it is just to open up to the possibilities of work and not allowing the process and, and mainstream conventions to reduce the playing field. The playing field is wide. Business is life. It could ideally be all of life. So it needs to have somatic intelligence. It needs to have dance and music and the arts and many other disciplines that we have long neglected. Different language, different practices, different rituals. So bring that to the extent that you can in your position, in your role, bring that to the table whenever you can. And your organization will be not only more innovative, and more imaginative, it will also be healthier. It will be mm -hmm. a, a more beautiful place that you and others want to return to every day. And the third thing I would say is, um, is just feel encouraged to trust what makes us inherently human and hone those skills and contribute them and say no to the data, have the courage to say no to the data if your intuition, if your gut tells you otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so don't mistake data for truth. Uh, don't try to objectify everything. Insist on your subjective truth and your emotions, on the truth of your emotions and your spirit and bring that to the table. And then design organizations that are, yeah, that are not only a machine, that are not only functional and efficient, but in the, in the most beautiful, broadest sense of the meaning, more beautiful, more human. So those are some of the things I think that we can all do. And uh, uh, yeah, I hope you will start doing them if you're not already doing them tomorrow. That's amazing. And, and I love the fact that given your experience in marketing, that you're saying, say no to the data <laughs> as a marketer. <laughs> I love that. it's hard. Yeah, that, is, I, that is a new way of thinking for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Tim. Um, we've really enjoyed having you on the show today. And, um, and I, I'm looking forward to watching this episode back again, just to try and unpack everything that's been said. Um, so uh, go and look at Tim's TED Talks. Um, you'll find them a quick Google search. And Tim, if our listeners want to contact you directly or to find out more about your programs, how can they do that? Yeah, just go to www.houseofbeautifulbusiness.com. Our website has all the information. Or go to timlebrick.com, my website. And you can also always find me online and connect with me on LinkedIn or other networks. I'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. All right. Thank you very much for your time. And we hope to speak to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. If it's impacting the future of work, it's in the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. Are you ready?